Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today, new efforts in New York City to help migrants coming from cities like Texas. So it doesn't matter if you came here on a Mayflower or on a bus at the Port Authority. You deserve the dignity and respect that this city continues to show. Newark schools are taking more steps to make the school year safer. That also includes an enhanced security system at five of of the high schools. A tribute to the late legendary novelist Jack Kerouac. I look at Jack as uh, somebody who was a documentarian of what was happening around him at the time. He just laid it out in his own way. And Grammy award-winning producer Carl Griffin remembers NEA jazz master Ramsey Lewis. We went back and recorded all his hits that he had on vinyl, and he just took off like a rocket. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. New York City is opening an Asylum Seeker Resource Navigation Center with migrants continuing to come to the Big Apple. We get the story from WBGO's Scott Pringle. The new center will serve the thousands of asylum seekers already in the city and the new migrants that continue to come. State Senator Luis Sepulveda says it'll guide the migrants to city services and help them get settled in the Big Apple. And while other states like Texas are using asylum seekers and immigrants as political pawns, New York City and Mayor Adams are demonstrating again that this city treats everyone with respect. Meanwhile, Mayor Eric Adams says several busloads a day continue to arrive from Texas with asylum seekers. So it doesn't matter if you came here on a Mayflower or on a bus at the Port Authority. You deserve the dignity and respect that this city continues to show. Adams says the shelter system is nearing its breaking point, but the city will continue to provide shelter for migrants. Scott Pringle, WBGO News. On Thursday's edition of our monthly award-winning call-in show, Newark Today, host Michael Hill asked Mayor Raz Baraka, is the city of Newark prepared to accept people coming from places like Texas? There is ways to cooperate and collaborate with other cities to, you know, galvanize resources to take care of people that are coming into our communities. And I don't understand why this is such an ugly and difficult thing for people to deal with. This country is built on immigrants. Immigrants have been coming to this country since its founding. Uh, And so it it is the type of immigrants that people are are opposed to uh, that we have to begin to embrace that and figure out a way to deal with this in a collective way to just put people on a bus and send them to another city is an is absolving yourself of your responsibility. Uh, It is like morally weak to me. Uh, and, And ultimately, I think that all of us should be trying to chip in and figure out how to deal with this. If we got a busload of immigrants today, I mean, Newark has a series of, of problems trying to deal with homelessness by itself, you know, and people that are coming from other places. You know, a busload of folks that are coming here uh, without our knowledge uh, that just show up here, would it would be difficult for our infrastructure, but we'd have to figure out how to deal with it. You can see and hear the entire Newark Today program at WBGO.org. The Evaldi, Texas school massacre was only a few months ago, and it's still fresh in the minds of parents and students across the country. The city of Newark is taking steps to make this year a safer one for its schools. WBGO's Janice Kirkell has more. My guest on the WBGO Journal is Catherine Carrera, the Newark Bureau Chief for Chalkbeat, a website which covers education. She recently reported on what New Jersey and Newark are doing to make sure students and teachers are safe. Catherine, welcome. Why don't we start by talking about what Newark is doing to make this a safer school year? Newark is using uh, significant 
chunk of their um, money from federal COVID relief funds to um, to beef up security in the district. So about 2.4 million will be going to security cameras alone. Um, and then there's also upgrades to school safety officers, as in uh, new patrol cars um, for about close to $300,000. So there's been a few a few um, upgrades to security that they're earmarking with uh, to use with uh, federal aid packages. Um, and uh, that also in- includes um, an enhanced security system at five of, of the high schools, and that's for another uh, $126,000. Um, so on top of the, the state's push to uh, digitize school maps and to have districts create threat um, response groups um, that uh, the district is also working on their own upgrades. Uh, what about they're also hiring more security guards and there's going to be a new um, student identification system? Yeah, um, so th- those are some things that uh, Superintendent Roger Leone mentioned at a recent Board of Education meeting. Um, he and and sort of outlined um, in committee reports um, that they're they've hired already 40 permanent security guards um, and they're looking to hire an additional 50 guards on a per diem basis so that when you have a security guard that isn't available that day called out or something you have someone uh, they they have a a fleet of guards that um, can come in on a per diem basis and um, there's also an upgrade to the command center that the Office of Safety uses to monitor the district. They have a remote surveillance system um, that they're going to be using that is new. And this all came out of a facilities uh, committee report um, from late August. And so, um, and that and that also includes um, a new student ID system. Now you write that money for a new digital school mapping system is going to come from uh, federal COVID relief funds. Uh, could you describe for us what what is this digital school mapping system? Yeah, it's super interesting, but uh, basically it works like putting a, a blueprint of a, a school, the, the giant paper maps that we've seen before, um, into a digital kind of interactive design where you can see from an aerial view uh, some pin, some really key points of access. Um, so that includes doorways, but also stairwells and um, other areas that uh, law enforcement would uh, it would be helpful for them in 
a terrible emergency like uh, uh, the school being under threat of a shooting. Um, and so I talked to someone from the National Association of School Resource Officers, the executive director, Mo Kennedy, and he said that, you know, the, the digital maps are, are can be super helpful, but they're, they don't replace the human element of uh, being familiar with school grounds. And so he strongly suggests that in to use the digital maps as a supplemental uh, to law enforcement actually getting into the schools, getting on the ground and being familiar with uh, the physical layout um, because it's one thing to see something on a, a screen and it's another thing to experience it. Um, so yeah, the digital maps are can be really helpful according to experts um, in those emergency situations, but um, they still don't replace uh, some of the the basic um, uh, tactics of of just getting familiar with a, a layout and 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 more importantly, the school community. Now, after a recent action by the governor, it seems like threat assessment teams are going to become uh, part of the fabric of, of the public schools. Is that right? Yes. Um, the governor on August 1st, he signed into legislation um, a, a, the establishment of threat assessment teams in public schools. Um, and districts are required to have these teams set up by uh, the start of next school year. So with all the new safety measures, have you talked much to parents or, or even kids about uh, how safe they feel? Do parents feel safe sending their kids to school, and, and do kids feel safe once they're there? After the bomb threats that uh, turned out to be unfounded last year, last school year, um, we did talk to families, and they were feeling anxious. They told us that they did feel like their kids aren't safe, like they have to worry um, while their kids are in school about their safety. And so... Um, and then we also hear that families don't want their, and, and students, they don't want to go to school and have metal detectors and security cameras and, and feel as if there's a need to feel this unsafe, um, this level of, of unsafety, and also that they're being looked at as potentially harming other students when they just want to go to school. They just want to go to school. Yeah, not as easy as it used to be. Catherine Carrera, Newark Bureau Chief for Chalkbeat, thanks very much for being with us on the WBGO Journal. As part of the Village Trip Festival, eight-time Grammy-nominated percussionist and bandleader Bobby Sanabria has teamed up with acclaimed musician and composer David Amrant to celebrate the centennial anniversary of the birth of the late legendary novelist Jack Kerouac. Last night at Joe's Pub, the two put together a concert of music and poetry titled Children of the American Bebop and Mambo Night. I had a chance to speak with Bobby and David earlier this week about the special tribute. David Amran is certainly a, a legend when it comes to also his connection with Jack Kerouac, who was back in 1957. David, you, Kerouac, and some other poets got together and staged the first poetry readings with jazz at an art gallery on 
East 10th Street in New York. Do you want to tell us about what that meant to you at that moment? Sure. Well, actually, Langston Hughes told me years later during what they called the Harlem Renaissance, which none of them who participated called it at that time. That was used after people got interested, just like the word bebop was used after Dizzy Monk, Kenny Clark, and uh, Charlie Parker had helped in mittens with hundreds of others to create that fantastic music. And the same is true when they used the word salsa. People had that on their eggs decades before they decided somehow this magnificent Afro-Cuban music and music of Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic and all these places that was part of our music, even though we didn't, most of us didn't know it, was suddenly they figured, well, we'll slap it all together because it seems like people are interested. I only say that because beat was a word that was used a long time ago, and by the time Jack's On the Road came out, he couldn't stand that term, and none of us could. Beatnik was like the words that we don't use referring to people's ethnicity, pigmentation, location, or education. I'm not saying that to bring everybody down. It's just that those terms diminish what's happening before it even gets a chance to happen. And when I went out to the Bronx and I took Elizabeth uh, Thompson, who runs the festival, and she heard Bobby and the group and these incredibly gifted, fantastic people, many of whom will be with their Friday night singing, and Bobby's group playing some of the music of Elmo Hope and great composers who were like Monk and Bud Powell that all hung out together. Suddenly, she was hearing for the first time what it was like in the Bronx when they were all living there over 50 years ago, when I played at the 845 or sat in there often, a whole world. And the reason I mention that is because Jack Kerouac was writing about that stuff and his book On the Road, which is read today by armies of kids, they're reading what he wrote about musicians that he heard in the 1940s. And he appreciated how beautiful that music and how beautiful jazz and Afro-Cuban music and Johann Sebastian Bach and Bartok all were. And I, I say that only because what we're doing, that afternoon I said, boy, I wish Jack were here. And they, even, and they had someone from Spain reading in Spanish and English. And the whole afternoon was exactly the kind of thing that we loved that made us do whatever we were going to do. And uh, with Bobby being there and, and sitting in with his group, I'll do a little something, then I'll be his side man and he'll do something, then I'll do one and he'll do one, and different people will read some of Kerouac. Some fantastic singers are coming, and while we have everything organized, it'll all be spontaneous, and people coming for the first time in their lives will see something that's supposed to be, pardon the expression, beat, you dig. And instead of being El Slimatissimo professional victims, we hate America because they hate us more, all that negative side of the stuff. That's fine, but this is something different. This is rejoicing in that beautiful spirit that these incredible musicians who weren't treated very incredibly well left us this gift. And that's a gift. Now that I'll be 92 in two months, I'm realizing my gig since I 
stayed around long enough to be an older person is to do what those hundreds of older people did for me and did for Bobby when he was great friends with Candido, who never would have shown up in those gigs we did if it weren't for loving Bobby. We are honoring what they gave us, and what they gave us, they got from their elders, and that's the way jazz has always been. And the business usually follows it 30 or 40 years later. So fortunately, Bobby's alive, and by a miracle I am too, so we're just going to try to make any young people there, whether they want to be musicians or read a Jack Kerouac book or write a poem or be an airline pilot, try to do a good job, do it better, love the people they're with, hang out with everybody, and keep it for real. David's career, most people know about David's fascinating career from composing the music for the Manchurian Candidate to being the first composer in residence for the New York Philharmonic, to going to Cuba with Dizzy Gillespie back in 77, recording and playing with Mingus. Of course, you play a number of instruments, piano, French horn, Spanish guitar, penny whistle. What do you think, as you ponder about the centennial birth of Jack Kerouac, what was his connection to this music? Why did he enjoy it so much to write about it? He loved it because when he's living in Lowell, Massachusetts, and I wish Bobby could come up there too and show the folks that music. When he lived in Lowell, Mass, he was living in the French-Canadian neighborhood, and even though it was a pretty rough town, all the different communities hung out with one another, and they all had pride in their community. So when he went to Moody Street and he heard the big bands playing, he also had heard Italian-American bands playing and French, you know, all the French-Canadian songs. He loved folk music. He loved Bach, whom he said was his favorite composer. So when he heard Monk and Dizzy, and when he heard some of the great geniuses like Mario Bowser and Machito's band, thing, people who had created that music, he could hear it and feel it when all the critics ignored it. <laughs> or didn't or didn't hear it or didn't feel it because they weren't told this is heavy this is trendy this is current this is what the kids will like this month so get it out there and get their money before they find out and some of the great music was there anyway for anybody and you could walk into a place like you still can in new orleans and many other places and hear it on the street or the musicians, if you were young, would invite you in, even if you were underage. It was a whole community sharing beautiful, warm feeling with people who were not treated with the respect that they deserved, but they respected the cultures they came from. And Jack was the same way. He didn't speak English till he was six years old, but and. and but he appreciated that music. And people, all these kids in high school now that read on the road, he's writing about the 1940s. And most of their parents and grandparents were disenfranchised. New York City's greatest radio station for jazz in the world takes place in New Jersey. Not because the 8 million New Yorkers are not capable of hearing it, but because many who live in the city don't get a chance because nobody's playing it to speak. However, millions of people are listening to it and many, many people are playing it and New Orleans somehow has survived and the Bronx has come back and Greenwich Village where we're playing. I always tell the kids there, since Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, the rents have been too high. However, 
that spirit is still, and men and women have been struggling, but the spirit's there, and jazz and Latin music are about that. And his first cousins, people like Bobby, have shown the world what it's about. And I was at the Lincoln Center when Bobby's Multiverse Orchestra did a whole evening of Leonard Bernstein's music reimagined. And I had worked there as composer in residence. I only thought, my gosh, if he'd only been there to hear that done that way, not as a wax museum or a death chamber re revisited, like seeing someone's coffin, but by seeing it live and created from that into something new. Because life and music are always changing, but if you get to those roots, you can't go wrong. All right, good evening and welcome to Jazz at Lincoln Center, Disney's Club Coca-Cola. Ladies and gentlemen, how are you doing this evening? Feeling all right? Great. Put your hands together. Keep on clapping for Bobby Sanabria and his multiverse big band. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. Our story begins in the year of my birth, 1957. It is a hot summer day in New York City on what is traditionally known as the West Side. First of all, I want to congratulate you, Bobby, on uh, the West Side Story Reimagined being nominated for a Grammy for Best Jazz Latin, uh, Best Latin Jazz Record. That was that was a beautiful, beautiful piece that uh, you put together. Congratulations on that. Thank you, thank you. And we we were very fortunate. We didn't, we lost the uh, Grammy, but uh, we did win the the jazz. We were honored by the Jazz Journalists Association as Album of the Year. So that counts even more because it comes from knowledgeable listeners who are jazz writers, the best jazz writers in the world. So thank you so much. Appreciate that. The first thing that you think about when you think about Jack Kerouac and you think about the centennial of his birth and you think about this performance, what comes to your mind? The first thing, as always, when I, I was shocked when I read On the Road for the first time and all of a sudden that first those first lines, on a, I forgot what page it is. It's always different in whatever published volume it is. Where he, where he starts going, it's the mambo beat, it's the Congo beat from the Congo, et cetera, et cetera. And I go, oh my God, this guy went to the Palladium Ballroom and hung out and he danced mambo. Not only he did, but all those cats did. Allen Ginsberg, uh, Ferenghetti, all those guys, they went there to get this, soak up the sounds of Africa meeting New Orleans, meeting Cuba, meeting the Bronx, etc. But in the communal vortex that was the Palladium Ballroom on West 53rd Street and Broadway, the home of the Mambo at that time. And what's amazing to me is that uh, in a conversation with David, he was telling me that Jack had written that. He had written basically on the road. Correct me if I'm wrong, David. He had started writing that back in 1950. When I was in the 40s, he had 10 versions, and the 10th version was the one that finally came out. He started that in the 40s because he was going, wow. To, wow. going to Columbia and going to Mittens. 
going to Minton's quite often, and hearing that music, they, Dizzy even named the tune Kerouac after him, because he was an unpublished writer, but he was a beautiful cat, and he had that same spirit that you do, and all the people we know at admire do. You didn't need a can opener to say hello. He was <laughs> open, and he stayed that way, and he got a lot of static from that, because he didn't act like Mr. Snob after he became successful. But neither do the great jazz or Latin players that we've known, who were some of them older than me and been nice all their life. I look at Jack as uh, somebody who was a documentarian of what was happening around him at the time. Amen. And he just he just laid it out in his own way uh, in On the Road and all the other things that he did, the subterraneans, all that other stuff. You can see my chat with David Amran and Bobby Sanabria on the WBGO Facebook page. NEA jazz master and legendary pianist, educator, and broadcaster Ramsey Lewis died Monday at his home in Chicago. He was 87. Three-time Grammy Award-winning producer Carl Griffin worked on several of Lewis's albums as part of the GRP record label and was his tour manager for a while. Carl Griffin joined me this week to talk about his friend. Well, you know, Ramsey uh, backstage, in his rider, he would have a bottle of red wine, a high-vintage red wine, and a bottle of high-vintage champagne in his rider to be in his, in his, uh, in his um, dressing room. And before he would go on, he would take a sip of his champagne, and then he would take the red wine home. <laughs> and Ramsey, in his home, had an extensive red wine collection that rivaled some restaurants in Chicago. That's fantastic. When was the first time that you heard the title track of his probably most famous album from the Washington, D.C.'s Bohemian Caverns in 1965, The In Crowd? When was the first time do you remember hearing that tune? <laughs> in 1966. Uh, I was just a babe then, just like you were. Um, and it had, such, it had such a powerful swing to it, you know, and... It, you know, I was I grew up with my mother playing Ella Fitzgerald and Donna Washington, all the classic jazz. And I was just, you know, I was a Motown kid. And I was this was like the first instrumental hit that caught my ear, and I was just amazed by it. And I, I immediately went and started trying to follow Ramsey Lewis. And, uh, I remember um, my mother crying when she heard his version of Wade in the Water that great gospel classic uh, that he turned into a classic uh, R&B song. So when was the first time you met him? So here's somebody that you idolized listening way back when, and now you get to work with him. How did that come about? <laughs> well, you know, as, as the A&R man for GRP Records, um, I had the task of listening to all <laughs> the tapes that came in to the, to the, to the office. And, you know, I'm going through this, all the CDs that people were sending in, and all of a sudden I, I see this package that was a cassette. I say, who's, who's sending you a cassette in the 90s? And I look, and I open it up, and Ramsey Lewis. So Ramsey Lewis is sending me a cassette, and I said, well, yeah, that's really Ramsey Lewis. He, he, had, he had such a unique style, Doug, that you knew immediately that that had to be Ramsey. So I said, okay. Um, I called Ramsey. I said, Ramsey, did you're a classic, and you have many hits, and the format, which was contemporary jazz that they now call smooth jazz, does not have any of your hits on CD. 
So, Doug, we went back and recorded all his hits that he had on vinyl, on CD, and he just took off like a rocket. It was this amazing project. Uh, Ivy Pyramid was the first one, and uh, the record, the, the track that they played was uh, this great stylistic hit uh, produced and written by Tommy Bell and Linda Creed called People Make the World Go Round. So Ramsey had a, had a renaissance as a not only musician, but a statesman for the music. Uh, you had Sky Islands in 93 with GRP Records with him, and then you co-produced Between the Keys in 96. When we talk about his unique style, he was able to meld gospel, blues, jazz, rock and roll, soul standards all together. Why do you think that was the case? I think, you know, obviously Ramsey was brought up in the church. So he had that background of church music and blues music there. Um, and he created this style wrapped around that kind of music. And you got to remember, um, Maurice White from Earth, Wind & Fire was his first drummer. So the combination of that you know, R&B, blues, jazz, just rubbed off on Ramsey. And that, that, that became his signature. Is there somebody out there right now that reminds you of Ramsey Lewis that has the ability to meld all these different types of genres and maybe just as much as an influence as a broadcaster? Um, Matthew Whitaker. I'm very impressed with Matthew Whitaker. I, I find the young man so brilliantly talented and has such a personality. Um, and I just, I'm watching him grow as an artist and as a person. And I think He's so unique that eventually where he can be a broadcaster because he, he connects to this generation of jazz people, jazz musicians, and jazz uh, lovers. You can see the entire interview with Carl Griffin on the WBGO Facebook page. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join me next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. If you enjoy the news programming you hear on the world's greatest jazz station, WBGO, support it now. You can go to wbgo.org support. And thanks. In the meantime, stay tuned to WBGO and wbgo.org.